Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again this morning. The Gospel of Luke in chapter number 5 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. This is sermon number 4 in our series, Disciple, where we are seeking to define and explain what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're looking at a disciple is a repenter. The disciple is a repenter. So Luke chapter 5, and we'll actually be looking uh, towards the end, verses uh, 27 through verse 32. If your children are anything like mine, you've experienced at some point in your parenting what could be called the fight apology cycle. Anybody seen that before? Fight apology cycle? It's that repeated series of fights and apologies that occurs during the course of the day, especially between four-year-old little boys and their sisters, uh, as I have experience from. Or I've heard it happens between sisters as they get older into their teen years as well. Uh, But you'll have to ask Megan about that one. Uh, She can tell you more about those fights. If you don't have children or happen to live in a bubble, live in a bubble as a child and you were isolated from the real world of sibling spats. Let me explain what this fight apology cycle is all about. It usually begins with some sort of object, a toy, a piece of salami, string cheese, uh, you name it. The object, this object gets taken from one sibling by another. Most likely that one sibling wasn't playing with that object at the time, But because they played with it in the last 24 hours, they think it's theirs and that they should be playing and keeping that. And so they get angry that their prized possession has been taken from them. And if you've seen what I've seen at times, they respond with an ear-splitting scream followed by a pinch, slap, punch, or depending on their age and size, a chomp. Anybody else seen that? Been there. Uh, that's then followed by another pinch, slap, chomp, punch, you name it. And usually at that point, you are welcomed into this as a parent. With great joy, you're welcomed into the fight apology cycle. Of course, as a good parent, you want the full story. And so you ask something like, what in the world is going on here? Or some form of that. And then it's At that point, you immediately realize that you've made a huge mistake by asking that question. Because now you find yourself in the middle of these two individuals who have no regard for the other person at all, who's talking just as fast and as loud as they are. And so your palm instinctively goes to your face, and then you, even though you don't know the whole story, you just have have to choose someone (laughs) to give the apology. Uh, You have to choose whichever one it is, and usually you go to the one that has the coveted toy or object in their hand, and you demand an apology. All right, give that toy, give that piece of salami, give that cheese back to your sibling and apologize. And the apology comes. It comes with an enthusiasm that can uh, rival paint drying. I'm sorry. But at that point... You have been swallowed by this vortex of chaos, and so the apology is sufficient, whatever kind of apology it is. Uh, You just want to move on 
and you're praying that the mayhem will stop. But this is the apology fight cycle. So it does not stop. In fact, it goes on and on and on throughout the day until you finally threaten to throw every single toy in the, in the garbage, burn down their bedroom if they do it again. Okay, maybe I'm the only one that has uh, tried that. Uh, has anybody else been there? Bought the t-shirt that says you've been there? What's up with this fight apology cycle? What's going on when the children just keep going after each other over and over again, yet they apologize? What's up with the fighting and repeated apologies? Well, the truth is, the cycle happens because true repentance hasn't. The cycle continues on and on because they aren't truly repentant. Neither child actually thinks they are in the wrong, and you as a parent, your cordial invitation into the cycle is only because you can make the toy go back to the rightful owner, the one that has owned the toy at some point in the last 24 hours. So those words, I'm sorry are far too easy for children to say, far too easy to say them without actually meaning them, aren't they? You see, neither child is acknowledging their sin, nor are they acknowledging their need for help. They just want that toy. Sadly, the lack of true repentance isn't something toddlers only struggle with, though. In fact, you and I are just as guilty of it as anyone else. Oh, we may, adults might not be fighting over toys or salami, but the struggle for our rule and reign over our own kingdoms is just as real and endemic. And since we also fail to acknowledge our sin and need for help, the cycle in our own life persists as well. That fight, apology, cycle. In fact, the harsh reality is that true repentance is an anomaly in our culture today. Just look at the way politicians and athletes apologize, quote-unquote, for their actions. I'm sorry if you were offended at what I said. Their words shifting blame to those offended rather than personally acknowledging or conceding guilt and remorse. And so the cycle continues. Whether it's a politician, an athlete, or ourselves... The cycle continues. But did you know that the Apostle Paul actually talks about that cycle and explains in the end what the cycle produces? If you turn to, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, you would read these words. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This cycle, fight, apology, fight, apology, Argument, apology, this worldly grief, Paul calls it, produces death. Yet on the other hand, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. It leads to life. You see, what Paul tells us is that true repentance ends the cycle. So what then is true repentance? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's where our notes go next. So here in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke, Luke has already introduced his readers to the call from Jesus to be disciples. In verses 1 through 11, Jesus is called Simon, who's normally known as Peter. He's called James and John to follow him and become fishers of men, and they do. They leave everything and follow Jesus. Then in verses 12 through 26, Luke shares two instances of Jesus healing those unable to help themselves. 
a leper, and a paralytic. And he closes these accounts by recount accounts by recounting the words of those who saw Christ's healing power in verse 26. He writes, We have seen extraordinary things today. But as we saw during our Advent sermon series, God has a way of doing extraordinary things in the midst of ordinary life. And so, our passage this morning, starting in verse 27, leads us back into a rather ordinary day in the life of Jesus and an ordinary meal. Look at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Before we go any further, let's ask God to speak through this word that he has for us this morning. Father, this morning, in these verses, would you speak to us? Would you show where true repentance has been lacking in our own lives and in our hearts? And what it looks like for us to truly repent. To be disciples who repent. Who turn from sin toward you in faith. So, Father, this morning, would you speak to hearts that are distracted, speak to hearts that are discouraged, speak to hearts uh, that may be in a season of encouragement, uh, but need to be faced with the reality that they are not repenting in their everyday life. They're not turning from sin. So, God, pray that you would show us that this morning that you would encourage us and we would leave being true disciples who acknowledge our brokenness and need for you. In your name, amen. As we read these verses, you'll notice that we won't actually find Webster's dictionary definition of repentance here. But what we do find is some help in understanding who is in need of repentance and what it looks like to truly repent. And so here we discover this big idea that true disciples acknowledge their brokenness and need to repent. True disciples acknowledge their brokenness and need to repent. And we do so by observing three things this morning. First of all, the patient in need of repentance, the opponents of repentance, and then finally, the posture of repentance. So the patient, the opponents, and posture. We begin this morning by observing the patient that's in need of repentance. The narrative begins here with Jesus leaving the house where he had just healed the paralytic. And as he leaves, he sees a tax collector. Now, much like the IRS in our day, in those days, the tax collectors were not always a welcome sight. If the IRS shows up on your doorstep tomorrow morning, you know your day is going to go a little rough. But the tax collectors in Jesus' days, they always took it up a notch. They were known sinners. They had a reputation for cheating people on their taxes. And on top of that, they were collecting these taxes for Rome. They certainly, that fact certainly didn't help 
And so they were seen as oppressors, even traitors of their own nation and people. They were extortionists. And so Jesus sees this tax collector, who he knows is detested and despised by the culture, and he calls out to him. The simple fact that Levi is a tax collector is a very important detail in this account. We can assume that Levi won't get a break from anyone with Christ and in Christ's entourage that day. Compassion is not something that's just going to be oozing out towards Levi, this tax collector. And so you can imagine how taken back everyone is when Jesus walks over to him and says, follow me. Uh, Jesus, like, you know who you're talking about here? That's Levi, the tax collector. You know, he's the one that we're supposed to hate the one that has taken every last penny or denarii of ours for himself or for Rome. Yeah, Rome, the ones that oppress us. So he's a traitor. So why in the world would Jesus want him to be on his team? I mean, Jesus, do you actually think that Levi is going to follow you? Well, to everyone's surprise, Levi does just that. Luke quickly moves to verse 28 and says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. Now when we read verse 28, most of us, having already studied the word and being familiar with scripture, we're likely to just skip over verse 28 and that statement, he's left everything and followed him. We kind of assume that's what's going to happen. But Luke doesn't want us to just assume this statement. Remember, this is a tax collector we're talking about. This guy is hated, and he has a lot. He has taken a lot over the years, and so to leave everything would be very costly to Levi. On top of that, tax collectors aren't the people who would usually find themselves hanging out with religious crowd. In fact, the religious found tax collectors to be easy targets for their reprimands and their condemnation. It would be clear to everyone that Levi, the tax collector, was a sinner. So why, why then, do we have verse 28 in this account? Why is Luke telling us that Levi leaves everything to follow Jesus? Well, Luke continues in the narrative into verse 29, and doesn't really tell us why, but I want to take a moment to pause here to jump down to verse 31, where Luke records Christ's words, And there it tells us why Levi would leave everything to follow Jesus. Look at verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, verse 31 tells us it's because Levi is sick. He is not well, he is broken. Jesus informs us here that the reason Levi was so quick to leave everything to follow him was because he was in need of a physician. And you see, Levi knows this. He knows how sick he was. And so he checks in at the front desk, leaves all his earthly belongings behind, receives the patient ID band, and takes his seat in line for his much-needed heart surgery. I mean, what a fitting illustration Christ gives us here in this passage for discipleship and true repentance. You see, those who come 
as patients to the great physician, they know their plight. They admit and acknowledge their brokenness and their need for help. They understand that their hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And so they turn to the only one who can truly help. They turn to Jesus. For when you fully comprehend how broken you are, there's no time for excuses. There are no at-home treatments. There's no, let me go lie down for a bit and then see if I feel better. No, this terminal disease can't be cured with a better diet of good works and religiosity. The truth is, you and I and everyone in the world are sick. And it's not because someone has coughed up or sneezed sin on you that you're sick. We are sick because we've been binge eating on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our brokenness... Our sickness is our own doing. And the antidote that the physician prescribes is repentance, as we see in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's the only thing that will work. It's the only cure for this sickness. And so, friend... I have to pause at this moment and say, if you're here this morning and have not yet turned to Christ in faith and repentance, the good news is that you can do so today. You see, God offers full forgiveness and redemption through the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you. And Paul explains it like this in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, we can insert, while we were still sick, sick in our sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for the sick. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us. Again, he repeats that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, that is God's love for the sick. So if you haven't repented, I encourage you and urge you to do so today. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe in Jesus. As Luke continues his account, it becomes increasingly evident from Levi's actions that that is exactly what he has done. That he has repented. He leaves everything. He follows Christ and verse 29 reveals to us he opens his home and hospitality as a means to introducing others to Jesus. Levi, Levi has found the cure to his sickness. And so, what does he do? He invites others into his life. He's found the great physician, and so what does he do? He throws a party. He gathers his crew, his boys, which remember, he's not all that popular in the city that day. But the guests that he calls in are his close buddies, and Luke tells us they are the other tax collectors, the other known sinners of the city. And so he breaks out the grill, he pulls out the coolers, the cornhole, the gallons of ice cream, you name it, and he provides this feast. And Luke reminds us it's a a great feast. This crowd that Levi gathers to meet Jesus is the kind of crowd that has all the makings for Chris to show up later on. Remember, these are the known sinners of that day. They're known for their parties. It's their life. But Levi welcomes them in. 
And what do we find? Well, there, in the middle of this party, is Jesus. There, in the middle of the sinners, the tax collectors, those who were despised, dejected from culture, is Jesus. The word in the flesh dwelling among Levi's crew. In reading the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, it seems safe, though, to say that it wasn't just Levi's crew. In fact, this was Jesus' crew. These were Jesus' friends. This is where he felt at home in the middle of the party with those that know they are sick and in need of help. And just like any good physician, Jesus is always looking for patients. So we find him in the middle of the party, eating and drinking with Levi's friends. But as the story continues to unfold, notice that Luke introduces us to the opponents of repentance. Verse 30, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? At first, you might be wondering, why in the world are the Pharisees in this account? Were they invited to this party too? No, not at all. You can rest assured that the Pharisees were not on the guest list for this party, nor would they have wanted to be. You see, the Pharisees are the respected middle class of that day, who would never have stooped to be with a despicable people like the tax collectors. They would never be seen dining with the sinners, the lowlifes of the city. These Pharisees, they're committed to holiness. They're committed to being separate. In fact, that's what the name Pharisee means, separate ones. And so being known for their commitment to holiness made them one of the most influential Jewish religious sects. And so as the holy men of that day, they had a reputation to uphold. And coming to dine with these lowlifes would have ruined that reputation. Just the thought of eating and drinking with sinners was utterly appalling to them. As a matter of fact, the B.D. Anyabwali notes in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees thought eating with sinners was unclean. They held an idea of holiness that required total separation from sinners. So to associate with sinners like Levi meant that they were unholy. Or so these Pharisees thought. But Jesus destroys this notion of holiness here. As he is reclining at table with these sinners, he's, he's knocking down the false idea that holiness is merely a matter of separating ourselves from those who sin. For holiness is primarily a matter of the heart, not who we hang out with. And so as these Pharisees look on, they're actually looking on from the outside. In the setting of that day, the courtyard would have been where the meal would have been taking place, and people on the street could have looked in and seen the party taking place. And as they look in, they begin to grumble or literally complain about Christ's actions. Why would you eat and drink with sinners? And while there's a question mark at the end of that statement, the truth is these Pharisees aren't looking for an answer. They're actually trying to make their disapproval known. So you have to read it with a little sneer in your voice. Why would Christ and his disciples eat and drink with sinners? 
In fact, isn't that what religious people always do? Make their disapproval known? They look down their long noses in disgust and criticism of the actions of others. They chide from a distance. They never get close enough to know the full story, to know who Levi truly is and what he's committed to do. They never know, they never get close enough to know the people that they're berating. No, the religious, they they keep their distance. They stay far away, even while Jesus is drawing near. The Lord prefers those who know they are sick with sin. You see, the bottom line is this. The religious in their pride and self-exaltation oppose repentance. They object to their need of repentance because they believe they have attained holiness on their own. They've kept the law. They've separated themselves from sinners. And so why would they need to repent? They seek to reject others from repentance as well and from the forgiveness it offers by isolating and condemning them, again, as they sit from a distance away. Because they think they are well, Jesus states, they have no need of a physician. The religious don't need Jesus. They are healthy. They are holy. They are right. They're like those New England Patriot fans who can never accept defeat. Always think and boast that they're the best. The religious can never do wrong in their own minds. They're always right. Or so they think. But there is a sad irony within Christ's statement here. It's that, it's that those who think they have no need for him, in reality, may actually need him the most. And so let me pause again to simply ask you this. Who do you most closely identify with in this story? Do you identify with the patient, Levi, the known sinner, or the opponents, the Pharisees, the religious, the separate ones? Well, let me ask it another way. Do you see your need to repent? Are you aware of your brokenness and need for help? See, Luke wants us to know that true disciples acknowledge their brokenness and need for repentance. And this acknowledgement doesn't ever end, nor does the need to repent ever stop this side of the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we are still broken. We are still in need of help. As Martin Luther wrote in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, he will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, Jesus calls us to a consistent life of repentance and faith. The entire life of believers is to be one of repentance, which brings us to our final point this morning, the posture of repentance. We begin, began this morning by asking, what is true repentance? And as I said, this verse doesn't give us a Webster's definition, but we do find what repentance looks like. So look back up at verse 28. And look at it again and follow along. It says, And leaving, that's Levi, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You see, it's not until we get to the end of this passage in verse 31 and 32 that we get a fuller understanding about what verse 28 is all about. 
This is what true repentance looks like. Oh, repentance might come with tears and snot bubbles and crying and saying I'm sorry over and over and over again. It might happen, but that might also come with worldly grief because you've been caught. True repentance looks like this, leaving everything and following Jesus. Leaving your sin, leaving your reputation as a known sinner, and following the Savior. So how do we know if someone is a repenter? Well, we know because they've left everything and they've followed Jesus. True repentance is only visible through this posture of humility and faith. Humbly acknowledging one's brokenness and admitting one's need for help. And then in faith, leaving everything else behind to follow Jesus, to follow this physician. The truth is, we can't see the inner workings of a heart. To see it repent from dead works to serve the living God. I can't see your soul begin to trust Jesus more than your self-righteousness. But I can see the fruit you bear from repentance. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Here in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, who's that guy that I immediately picture when I hear that word repent. You know, the crazy guy, hair everywhere, standing on the street corner, wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, shouting at the top of his lungs, repent, repent. Well, here in verse 7, this guy, John the Baptist, as he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious, coming to him, he says this. Look at verse 7 in the last portion. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What John says here is that if there is true repentance, it will be visible by the fruit it produces. A tree that bears good fruit is good or, or righteous. But a tree that bears bad fruit... It's bad. And so it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It will be destroyed. Again, back in Luke chapter 5, this is exactly why we know Levi has repented. Because of the fruit it's produced in his life. In fact, that's why we know David repents. Not because of the words that he wrote in Psalm 51 that we read this morning, but because of the fruit Produced by repentance. And so let me ask you, what fruit has repentance produced in your life? You see, if there's no fruit, if you do a self-evaluation of the fruit in your life, if there's no fruit, then that likely means there's no repentance. There's no turning from your sin to following the Savior. We could say it, Again, as we started off the series, without repentance and its fruit, you cannot be his disciple. 
So this morning, here in Luke chapter 5, we see the patient who is in need of repentance. These are sinners that are called from the Savior to repent, who know that they are sick, and in humility they acknowledge their brokenness and need of help. But we also see the opponent who stands from a far distance, the self-righteous who say, we have no need for help. But then we also see the posture of those who have repented, and that again is humility and faith. It's visible in the fruit of repentance, who are willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. Are you truly a repenter? Again, in the context of our sermon series over these nine weeks, we're looking at what it means to be a disciple. If you are a repenter, then you're a disciple. You follow Jesus. If you're a disciple, then you are one who will continue that lifestyle of repentance, of turning from your sin. And so in closing, I want to share briefly with you three simple ways to grow in repentance. First of all, know your sin. Look for the areas in your life where you are weakest. Maybe that's with your spouse. And every time at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock when there's a specific conversation that's about to happen, you know you're tired, you're weak, and it's going to end up with an argument or uh, a fight in some manner. Maybe it's your children. So as fathers, as you're driving home from work, you have to use those five, ten minutes, however long it is, to pray, God, would you help me as I come in and I'm attacked by my children to love them, to be patient with them. Maybe for you as moms, it's that quick little step into the bathroom, locking the door. (laughs) They're out there. The animals are going to get me. God, please help me. I know my sin. I know how I repent or how I act in this and I'm repenting. Now help me go. Know your sin. Look for those areas where you're weakest. And then fight it. Fight your sin. I heard an illustration from Matt Chandler when we were together for the gospel about the show um, When Animals Attack. Pete, you remember that? Uh, When Animals Attack. Anybody seen that show? Uh, It's that show where they bring in these animals into different settings, and then they're surprised that the animals attack. Uh, So there's this one where they bring in this lion, and the the guy that's leading the lion along is like, yeah, whatever, leading him, tells him to sit, and he sits. Uh, The lion does everything he says. And then they bring in a model that's doing shampoo or something like a lion would have anything to do with shampoo. Uh, and, And they start taking the photo shoots. And all of a sudden, the lion turns and just mauls the lady. The lady lives, don't worry. Uh, she lives, but they're surprised at the end. Like, why in the world would the lion attack? Duh, it's a lion. It doesn't matter. They, they're going to attack at some point. Uh, they are going to attack. So know your sin, know that it's going to attack, and then fight it. Do what you can to strengthen your resolve to fight temptation, especially in those areas of weakness. Seek the help of others to keep you accountable in the fight. And do that for others as well. Seek to keep others accountable. So know your sin. Fight your sin. And then be quick to repent without excuse. You see, those who know their sin and are engaged in the fight against it recognize the necessity of repentance. They know that they need to repent. 
They know how quickly it is that they can jump into that impatience. Uh, They can jump into viewing something on the TV or the internet. They understand their weakness. So they know they're fighting, and yet they're going to fail, and so they're going to quickly turn and repent. And what does repentance look like? It turns in humility and faith to following Jesus. So be quick to repent, and honestly, I have to tell you, this is difficult for me. Just ask Megan. Uh, It's difficult for me to repent without excuse. I want to excuse my sin in any way possible. I want to excuse it on the children. (laughs) I mean, if they wouldn't act this way, I would have been impatient. Uh, I want to excuse it on anything that I can come up with in that moment. And so pray for me in this. I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray for each other that we would know our sin, fight our sin, and be quick to repent. That we would be known for our humility. We'd be known for following Jesus as repenters. On January 23rd of 1546, Martin Luther, that great reformer, traveled to his hometown to arbitrate between a family dispute between two brothers. Through his mediation, the two were reconciled. However, Luther, because he was 62 years old and weary of the many demands in his life, he fell ill. On February 18th, in his very last moments, Luther was asked by his friend, Do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? Luther answered emphatically, Yes. And then he shared his last words here on earth. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. You see, Luther, again, the one who understood that the whole life of a believer is to be one of repentance, he understood that to be true because he understood that we are broken and in need of help. That we are those who are sick. Verse 31. Who have need of of a physician. True disciples acknowledge their brokenness and need to repent. Oh, may we, as disciples of Jesus, be marked by humility and faith, bearing the fruit of repentance. So, Father, this morning, that is my prayer from this passage for us as a church, that we would bear the fruit of repentance, that we would know our sin, we would fight our sin, we would be quick to repent. And that would look like lives turning towards you and in faith of leaving everything behind and following you. That you would make us true disciples. That you would help us to follow, learn from you. That when we see you confront us in your word, that we would turn and apply it and do it. So even this morning, help us to do this. Help us to be doers and not hearers only. May we be known for our humility and our faith. For your glory and for our joy in you and you alone. Not in the things of this world because we've left that behind. We know how how quickly we are to be taken in by those things. And so we're repenting and turning in faith to you. Leaving that behind and following you.